0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Pensions Expert podcast. On the show this week, we'll be talking about how Aon and Willis-Towers Watson have dropped their merger plans to become the world's biggest insurance broker after the US Department of Justice raised concerns. We'll also discuss whether rushing consolidation of defined contribution schemes could be detrimental to the retirement outcomes of members. And we'll also hear an update on the pensions dashboards and what this all means for the pension sector. Last but not least, we'll look at the implications of the pensions regulator's review of schemes that might be eligible for the fraud Compensation Fund. My name is Stephanie Baxter. I'm a financial journalist at Rotik Media, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm joined by David Saunders, who is a partner at Sackers, and Kim Goobler, who is chair of the Pensions Administration Standards Association. Thank you both for joining me today. Shall we kick off with our first topic then? This is about Aeon and Willis Towers Watson's abandoned merger. The companies announced in March 2020 that they planned to combine their businesses to create the world's biggest insurance broker. But on 26th of July this year, they abandoned their planned £22 billion merger after the US Department of Justice intervened and sued the two companies to block the deal. Now, the merger would have combined their pensions, consultancies and fiduciary management businesses, creating a dominant UK player in these sectors. And the two companies had agreed to sell several US and german subsidiaries to get the deal approved and receive the assent of the European Commission's competition watchdog. David, if I could start off with you, if, that, if that's all right. Um, the US Department of Justice was concerned the transaction would reduce market competition and lead to higher prices. Do you think their views um, were valid? And, and also, why did the European regulator give the go-ahead, but the DOJ did not?
1: Like all of these things, there's there's two sides to every argument. And clearly, um, Aon and willis Towers Watson were keen to um present the view as they they did both before and, uh, and indeed after abandoning the deal that they believed that, that that what was proposed was um going to be in, in you know in the interests of of consumers um that you know, yes you're right the eu commission was persuaded and um you know these are of course both businesses which are um headquartered um in the in the eu it's important to 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 to, to the eu to have um, strong organisations functioning within its territories, albeit that I'm sure that that was not their their primary concern. Their primary concern is, of course, to to deal with with, with competition uh, concerns. D- different regulatory bodies have different views, and obviously the DOJ has reached a, a different view on on market competition um, compared to the to the EU's position. And and that is what you know regulatory bodies do. I think what's more relevant is obviously with these deals, you know, there comes a point in time when the parties to them decide that they don't make sense anymore, and clearly um, the parties to this transaction have sort of concluded what would be necessary to achieve the assent of the of the DAG to to withdraw its case. You know, means that the deal perhaps doesn't make sense for them anymore, um, either in terms of what it was that they would ask for ultimately, in terms of further divestments, or the the, the timetable um, delays that would be caused by the by the court case. Which, which, uh, uh, to remind you that Aon and WWE both felt that they would would win.
0: Well, I thought that was quite quite interesting actually. That you know they said seemed confident that they would win the case that they that they didn't. Why didn't they just pursue pursue the merger? Especially when it had they had approval from the EU regulator, and also it's come at a heavy price because um, Aon net must now pay um, uh, a one billion dollar termination fee to to Willis as Watson. And and then I just want to ask also ask you, David, um, do you do you think that, that the merger, um, if it had gone ahead, would have been a good outcome, a good thing for um for their pension scheme clients and, and the wider industry in your view?
1: What we certainly won't end up with now is a giant compared to the you know the other UK players. I think I think that the, the stats work that something like the, the combined revenues of, of WTW and um Uh, and Aon in the UK would have been about 75% bigger than its nearest competitor so you know it would have been um, a very significant thing and I think you know we have deep and excellent relationships with both organisations we would have continued to have no doubt excellent relationships with them if they were combined and we'll continue to have excellent relationships with them as as independent organisations and uh, just like Know, different regulators take different views I think there are people on different ends of the spectrum to the, on this one as well there are some people that would have no doubt believed that you know having a, 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 a you know an even bigger massive player and the synergies that could have created would have would have had benefits to it and there are there are others who will um, no doubt you know welcome the fact that the, that, that the two will be kept apart no least because I expect some people will be relieved from the fact they don't have to review their advisors um, in the result of the the fact that you know they have Sort of wWna on either sides of the company and 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 trustee advisors and and that the, they may have needed to think about whether they want to go elsewhere if they'd combined
0: thank you for that and and kim if i could bring you in here I and mean, what what are, what do you what are your thoughts on um on, on on this about you know the abandoned merger and whether you think it would have been, um, uh, you know, potentially sort of bad outcome for um, for Aon and Willis Towers Watson, sort of pension scheme clients and the wider industry, um, and also if we kind of think about, you know, it would have created, um, you know, such a such a big player and potentially could have reduced competition. Uh, you know, uh, well, under what the um, DOJ uh, said.
2: I think the first thing you need to think about is what drove this. And it was the risk business. It wasn't the EBC business, the consulting business at, at all. So it was bringing to, together the you know the two big risk businesses, and that's essentially what well, the EJ was was up against. And I don't know how true it is, but my understanding is is that the previous administration in in the US was pretty keen on the merger, and the current administration is not. So sort of that sort of dropping away of support. I think, was an indicator sort of there. So if you go to looking at, at sort of what the impact on the UK employee benefit consulting business, it is effectively a secondary or important, but a secondary decision sort of on that. There were quite a lot of alignment. You know, you have to also sort of think about the fact that this was, you know, primarily a on. You know with sixty seven would have had sixty seven percent of the of the ownership. Most of the you know both firms have got very good people across, across the cross piece. Um, uh, there would have been some fallout where there was some, some some dual roles personally. and and you know this sort of de- depends on what hat I'm wearing. But personally, I think having a a diverse market is healthy and so therefore although i didn't see you know i didn't think it would be initially an absolutely detrimental i i think that there's not going to be any harm done by keeping it you know the status quo as, as it is
0: well thank you both for your thoughts on that topic and um if you go on to the to our second topic um so this one's about uh dc consolidation um so under proposed rules from the department for work and pensions Defined contribution schemes with assets under £100 million will have to prove their value for members or face consolidation. This is effectively to improve saver outcomes and put capital towards um, green technology and infrastructure investments. But some experts in response to the DWP's consultation have warned that these proposals go too far too soon and risk eroding the involvement of employers in the retirement outcomes of their workforce. And some have also said that rushing consolidation could even be detrimental to members' retirement outcomes. Kim, um, what would you sort of make of all this? Do you think that these proposals could affect members' pensions outcomes for the worse if they're uh, rushed too fast, too soon?
2: Well, I think, again, there's, there's two sides to this. There's consolidation of the under 100 million, and then there's the 100 million to 5 billion question. And I think, Although there are still some some negative views on the sort of under 100 million, there's a fairly reasonable consensus that that, that there could be better outcomes for members in that space if they transition to a larger body. Um, So before we talk about the sort of 100 to 5 billion, the problem is market capacity in that sense, because if you have everyone going through a similar value for money process at a similar time and they and even if 60 percent of them uh, decided that they they couldn't meet those, those criteria they then got to find suppliers in a relatively small market and relative you know not all master trusts would take every potential uh, client scheme as a client on you know um, plus the fact, and one of the things that, uh, that PASA sort of highlighted in its response, and that goes across both, is, you know, this isn't a simple matter. This involves quite a lot of advice, legal advice, David, I'm sure you would <laughs> know, um, investment advice, etc. cetera, because this isn't just for future service. So the existing trustees have got to be satisfied that the new um, vehicle is appropriate in and delivers value for money so they've got to do their own value for money assessment their future value for money assessment they've got to have the legal advice if it's a master trust that's going to that the employer's got to have its legal advice the employer's got to have its advisors to be able to choose the master trust and again there has to be sufficient capacity in the market to take that on and some of those smaller dc schemes may not be attractive you know they may have very small sort of assets under management. Uh, they might be tricky. They might, you know, nobody's really addressed the what about the schemes that have got underpins, either, you know, fixed or or GMP underpins, because that is a really tricky subject to be able to. You can't just translate those, um, or certainly not at the moment. So I think there are definitely issues with that, but it's probably in the main a good thing. You know, as long as it is managed and people don't have a short window with which they to do it, when you go for the hundred billion to five billion, well, this is when we, you know, we have a different view because there are a lot of large. You know, five billion pounds is a lot of money. There aren't that many DC pension schemes, solely DC pension schemes in the in the UK that are that big, and there are some pretty good ones of the sort of billion upwards actually i know some that are sort of you know around about the 800 million you know, they're still classed in this immature dc stage it's quite it's quite large and so therefore you know having to go through pushing consolidation like that i think you know and that's where i agree with the with the industry view in that i don't think there's capacity capacity i don't think it's necessary there should be some way of identifying those schemes that really should consolidate and there should be a destination. So if you can't find anything else, they can go there that is gives people value for money because it's about that quality to sort of delivery. So it's sort of it's it's a it's a question of two halves again. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and I think that then that's 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 really interesting, Kim. And I think if you kind of mentioned that is there capacity in the in the master trust market to take on more? You know, a lot of master trusts have just gone through authorization. A lot are still kind of, you know, relatively I- immature. I mean, do you, what are your what are your thoughts on, on on this on this David? And we sort of think about um, you know master trust master trust capacity to take on more schemes consolidation, and um, it's all very well. The, you know the DWP kind of proposing rules to encourage consolidation but at the same time it, is it would it even be possible when uh, would that be in the best interests of, of members
1: you know, again following on from Kim splitting this into into two bits of the, the you know the sub 100 and those those above I mean as regarding the sub 100 one of the question marks we would raise is that 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 some of those schemes at, at, at that level may already not be um, complying with some of the legislative requirements that are already in place and expected of them in terms of you know doing chair statements etc that should that should be being done, and and the question mark is that if those schemes are are already not complying and that might be simply because of ignorance of the law, are they going to be aware and comply with 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 these requirements to create these. Um, you know, additional disclosures in their chair statements, and, and and go through the necessary process and take the necessary advice that they that they need to do that. And so, you know, if, if that is right, you know, and 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 the evidence of the time will tell in terms of whether this does lead indeed to sort of any sort of acceleration in, in consolidation. Then, um, if it doesn't work, then um, you know the government may have to to think again about compulsion, which obviously it's indicated that it's it, it would be you know potentially minded to do. I think for those schemes that that are equally up, you know are aware of it that this is coming down the track, I think there's also a potential moral hazard that 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 they will look to to, to put themselves into winding up before um the requirements apply to them because of course what's been clarified now is that if you're if you go into wind up before you have to issue your first chair statement, that, that these new requirements won't apply to you. And then, um, you know, will that wind up then be well managed in members' interest to do it properly and efficiently, et cetera, or or will that lead to you know a, a, another load of difficulties in terms of outcomes for you know for members and proper governance their pension savings? So, I think you know that 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 stuff's really you know is is worth remembering. As regards the bigger schemes, I, I'd agree with Kim. I think there are you know there there is evidence of of. Lots of good schemes um that operating out there that that aren't necessarily anywhere near the the five billion pound mark and uh, you know it, it's interesting it be interesting to see in due time if this comes out still sort of why that sort of threshold of five billion as the upper end mark was, was has been chosen by but you know by government in terms of it, its call for evidence on this next of this next stage. I think the, if, it, if it's that big, and, and as Kim, I think again, is indicating, five billion would be bigger than than you know a number of the master trusts, you know, are themselves at this stage that have only just received authorisation. Then you know you could see the consolidation of the market into a relatively small number of players, and then that must start to raise questions about you know will that stifle innovation? Will that be a good thing for consumers? Will it? You know, will it become harder to negotiate terms with the master trust etc., with less competition in the market than there than there was before? And finally, just remembering that um, look, it, all of these things are horses for courses. But you know, there are advantages to well-run occupational pension schemes in terms of the you know the personal touch they can offer. You know, with their with the with the workforce and the the employees that they apply to and the tailoring of the. Of the benefit and, and investment package for 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 those people that are working there, and, and and that shouldn't necessarily be forgotten in the sort of, um, you know, the rush to sort of move everybody into a into much bigger funds.
0: I'd like to move us on to our third topic. So this is about the pensions dashboard. The pensions dashboard project is making a lot of progress. There's been a number of recent announcements. The pensions dashboard program revealed recently that seven software providers administrators and pension providers will be taking part in the first test of the dashboard. It also will develop uh, technology to make sure the processes are in place and to make onboarding as easy as possible. Um, In addition, um, PASA, which um, Kim um, is chair of, her organisation has launched new guidance on e-administration as schemes need to get their data in order to comply with the dashboard deadline in 2023. Uh, PASA will also lead the development of conventions for matching dashboard users to their pensions. Um, Kim, this all seems to show that the, the pensions dashboards well on, well, on, well on the way to be ready for 2023. However, there has been some criticism or scepticism from some of the industry about, um, about being able to meet the deadline. Um, how confident are you that the planned deadline is still on track?
2: It's, it's a difficult question. I think we need to just take a step back. There's been quite a lot of criticism from uninformed people on, on LinkedIn talking about dashboard being a failure, about it being, taking such a long time, etc., and also just focusing on trust-based schemes when actually it covers all pension schemes that are not in payment. That might change in future, but that's where it's starting from. The DWP basically it was in 2019 when it sort of kicked everything off. In reality, so we have to ignore the prototype that went before because Brexit and everything else really put a stop to anything sort of before that, and then Brexit again stopped stopped an awful lot in in twenty twenty. So from effectively, PDP has been working since the beginning of twenty twenty. So I think first of all, for having been having been going for. Around about 18 months, an awful lot has been achieved. So just put that one to bed. Uh, One of the things that DWP did say in 2019 is is that dashboards would be extensively user tested. And I think we have to keep on looking at what we can do and what we can do for consumers, because it has to be consumers, because they're not all members, because it's every pension benefit that they might have and so looking at what is possible and that's why we passed that was we came up with our safe simple soon little three word title to it and that was getting fined because if you think about it all international experience states that the people that will actually be using for the next 20 years or so Dashboard will be generation X's, so people mid-1960s to 1980. Look at every piece of research from brought. They are the people that are basically looking at dashboard because they're the ones that are starting to think about it. So everything else on you know your generation Ys and Zs and all the younger people, that's that that'll come, but that'll come later. So the majority of people, or a lot of the people that will be connecting to dashboards will be people that have a a mix of DB and DC uh, uh, pension benefit. And that then pushes back onto a lot of the trust-based world, obviously. So we have to be thinking about separating our thoughts on FIND, and that's why the data matching conventions, it's the DMC. I always think of Run DMC, but it's the DMC, which... HAFSA is basically leading because we're talking about safely matching. So that's getting the sensitivity and the specificity, I always struggle with that word, but those two right. So that when you're matching, because if you set that bar too high, because every pension scheme has got to determine what is right for them, Uh, if you set that too high, then people just won't see it. And if you set it too low, then there may, then it's when you get the mismatching. So you've got match and mismatch, but you've also got the grey, the fuzzy, what they call fuzzy data. It could be and it couldn't be. Um, so what we're doing, you know, we've got together with uh, PLSA and ABI uh, to really look at what is can be universally applicable to all pension schemes. That's not just trust-based, but all pension schemes. And building on the existing data-matching and sort of aligning with the existing data matching protocols and also aligning with small pods so that we're not creating lots of different ideas and and, and uh, processes for people to do and aligning it with the potential regulatory regimes with FCA and TPR. And to do that, we're liaising with 11 of the leading administration software providers so they provide software across the piece public private etc to look at what is possible because like you said pep announced the the seven alpha data providers so administrators and effectively who are going to connect to the uh, dashboard ecosystem from late later on this year and they'll be doing a lot of testing but the thing is they'll be testing on uh, synthetic data so you know, well, apparently it's more it's more sophisticated, but I think it's what we used to call dummy data. But it is is more sophisticated than that. So, the when the beta uh, providers come on board, that so might be the alpha providers, maybe some more beta providers. They will be testing on real data. So, what we, as a group, we put together is probably going to be refined, be reviewed and refined as we go through. So that by the time people have to, schemes have to connect to the the dashboard, what we're looking to be able to do is have something that's universally universally applicable. And I think that's entirely sensible because that takes away the the sort of what data should we have. But also, if we have universally applicable data matching conventions, we can also, leading into sort of hopefully what David's going to cover in a bit, give some comfort to scheme managers and, and trustees that they are able to provide that data because you know the data matching it's all it's all consistent and the core for information uh, that pdp puts out it's going to be very very challenging and that's one of the reasons why the uh the admin working group has admin working group put together that really important piece which is, you know, the industry has got to appreciate that technology is vital for delivering pensions. And for technology to do that, you have to have good data. So it's all coming back to that foundation. Everything that we want to do, everything that government wants to do, has its basis in good data. And for too long, It has been seen as a cost, and we have to start looking at it as an investment. Just as a a, you know board of DB trustees will pay money to their um, investment advisor for good investment advice, they need to be investing that money to get their data right, so that they can allow their members to connect and see what pensions, uh, what pension benefit they've got. Now, there's a bit of a ramble, but it, it's it's everything is in, interconnected and you just can't look at anything on in an on itself.
0: And it'd be great to just to bring in um, um David here, um kind of to give the sort of legal a bit of a legal perspective. Um, I see the things that some of the issues that come up with um, with the dashboard are you know sort of data protection. Um, but, you know, but but also the potential for a member to be matched up with, with the wrong pots and the potential, you know, the kind of legal ramifications there. And what are your thoughts on that, David?
1: Yeah, well, look, this is something that's very much obviously in its infancy. And, you know, we still haven't got all of the, the detail yet to know how this is all going to fit together. But, you know, a couple of initial thoughts from me, I guess, would be that the first thing would be if, if if, if, if something happens there is some sort of mismatch that the first thing you're going to be asking yourself is well who's actually responsible for for the mismatch is that have the trustees done exactly what they were required or and or compelled to do so i'm taking i'm assuming trustees i'm taking an example of an occupational environment but you know or have have they made decisions and acted negligently in some way in the decisions that they've that they've made and the process that they've gone through in sort of trying to to, to match people with the um, requests that are, that are that are coming in to sort of match them and then I guess the other thing is what has flowed from from that from that mismatch uh, in terms of what loss that might have led to for for people and you know it's not impossible to you know foresee in a disastrous scenario that you know you provide information on the wrong pot and somehow that ends up leading to somebody making a fraudulent claim to, to get transfer that pot out to somewhere some, somewhere else i mean it, 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 you know would that be possible Or the existing safeguards in the process you know are there in place kim wants to jump in i think
2: sorry i did i was waiting i was just waiting and um, the liability model it's going to look really you know obviously it will look at at that but you've, what you've got to think about with with dashboards there's no functionality at all so it's pushed you've got your your identity verification which is the same level as you have for connecting with HMRC. So that person has got to verify themselves. What they may see if there's a mismatch is they may see at the moment, if you just go and find, they might see ABC pension scheme. And here are the contact details. If you go and find and view, they'll see ABC pension scheme. And currently, they'll they'll have potentially the date of leaving uh, benefit. If they want to do anything, they still have to go through exactly the same process as they, they do now. So there's, there's absolutely no, there's no calculation ability. There's no functionality around that. And not to say that a dashboard provider can't put something around the outside, but dashboard itself is, is, a, is a closed unit
1: yeah understood him but clearly obviously if there's a, if there's an error then that may give access to somebody to information that they otherwise would never have sort of yes. obscene and and somebody who's mischievously minded um you know may be able to do something i guess in theory with that information yes. um the, the 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 other thought is i i think is that uh, sort of from speaking to trustee clients is that they sort of are the most concerned about making sure that obviously when they're going to be sharing all of this information back to Um, to the dashboards, that from a data protection perspective, that the legislation is drawn um, clearly to give um, them a safe harbour for for what they're doing. So I think that is the space that um, that, that we are watching and that they are watching most closely at the moment.
0: So we've almost come to the end of our podcast. So we're just going 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 to quickly touch on our final subject. So this is about the pensions regulator and the pension protection fund are reviewing pension schemes that might be eligible for the fraud compensation fund. This follows uncertainty around instances where no independent trustee has been appointed to a scheme. This this came on the back on the back of a, um, a letter from Labour MP T- Stephen Stephen Timms, who is chair of the Work and Pensions Committee, and um, he asked TPR to clarify the conditions in which pension savers were eligible for compensation and so i just want to bring in david here just to sort of perhaps take us um, through this uh, kind of very briefly about you know what this could potentially mean um the outcome of the review could it mean that um all schemes should have to appoint an independent trustee to be able to make a claim and and also why this has um this has sort of come out now
1: yeah, so this I think follows on. Um, well, so let's reverse back. So obviously, this, this the Poor Compensation Fund exists as a, as a as a vehicle to pay compensation to to occupational pension schemes where assets have been reduced because of um, acts of dishonesty. And up until sort of late last year, um, the amounts paid out had been relatively modest, something like five million pounds since since the since the fund was established under the Pensions Act 2004. But in the um, the autumn of last year, we got um, a judgment from the High Court, which clarified um, a number of the eligibility conditions for making um, claims on the on the SEF. And and the judge made clear that uh, there should be a fairly wide interpretation drawn to those gateway provisions to allow claims to be made. So I think that had already made a significant impact on the number of claims that might be made. And as part of that judgment, we know that the PPF said that they were aware of potentially about £350 million worth of claims um, being out there in the wings. And so compare that to the to the £5 million that had been you know, paid out to date. What this latest correspondence is, is a further refinement of some of the eligibility, really, for, for, for making claims. And that's in relation to those schemes where Stephen Timms is, is, is asking if there's no sort of trustees or functioning trustees in place or any scheme assets do they in theory still uh, are eligible to make claims on the FCF uh, and the the, the the joint response um, from, from the PPF and um, TPR is saying in principle the legislation wouldn't necessarily require there to be a trustee in place but of course the the process that you need to go through in order to make a claim on the FCF which requires Somebody to sort of be gathering together the evidence of the dishonesty in the first place, and then valuing the claim and making efforts to recover um, the lost assets, etc. All of that, and then of course that the the compensation itself has to be paid to the scheme, not to the members who've lost out, and therefore um, there needs to be somebody to distribute um, that those those compensation monies. All of those things in practice mean that um, a, a, a trustee is is needed. The reality is that I think that, that, that there, e- there probably is an independent trustee already appointed to um, a significant number of these schemes. And I think what the correspondence indicates is that TPR will be reviewing again whether for those schemes that a trust, where a trustee hasn't been appointed, um, w- whether it's now an appropriate time to look again at that and whether it should exercise its powers to appoint one.
0: Thank you so much for that, David. And thank you so much to, to David and to, and to Kim uh, also for taking part in the podcast. And this brings us to the end of the programme. We will be back in two weeks' time for the next episode of the Pensions Expert podcast. See you then.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even
0: softer over time.